John chapter 10, verse 10. This is God's word, eternally true. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now turn back to chapter 14. We'll begin there in verse 21. John 14, verse, John 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. Now turn to chapter 15. And we'll look at verse four and read through verse 14. So John chapter 15 and find verse four. We'll begin there. John 15, verse 4. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Here ends our reading. There's a response of thankfulness up here and in your bulletins. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks, be God. Thanks indeed. Let's pray. Uh, we're, as you know, looking at the Gospel of John. And John has uh, made no secret of why he's writing the Gospel. In chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, I've written all these miracles and there are more miracles, more signs that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this book, the Gospel of John. And then he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that's John's purpose as he writes to what looks to be Jewish Christians around AD 90, that he's writing to them that they would know that the Christ or the king, the anointed king, 
that they had been looking for since 600 B.C., when their king was removed from them and taken off to Babylon, and that kingship never being reestablished in Jerusalem, that this king was Jesus. This son of God, as God had told David, that his sons would be God's own sons. Um, and Jesus comes in that role as son of David, um, king over God's people, as well as eternal divine son, and John writes so that we would be convinced of both. Um, we're looking now so that we understand the Gospel of John as his original readers would understand it in AD 90. And so we're, what we're doing is we're, we're um, spending some time um, talking about what a king did and what he meant to God's people in Old Testament times and why they were so looking forward to somebody coming who was the Christ or the Messiah, which were their terms for their king. So they were excited by this, and, and Jesus was rejected by the Jews for being as their Messiah, as their king, as their Christ. Uh, but John writes, as a Jewish disciple of Jesus, to fellow Jews and says, look no further. This is he. And he gets all the evidence and the, the right questions are asked through my gospel and they are answered so that you can see and, and also believe and not, not waver in your confidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, your King, and that you follow him. So uh, we look here in our introduction here as we have in past weeks and we say here along with Jesus that a king is the good news. Uh, that's how Jesus introduces himself, what he talks about. It's why his parables are so often about the kingdom and about a father who has a son that he honors and places his son over all the people. But the people he comes to reject him and throw him out of the vineyard. Uh, and, and so, um, but Jesus declares this. He comes out of his anointing as king by John the Baptist who anoints him. Uh, with God the Father speaking from above at that anointing as king, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days and then comes out and the first words out of his mouth that we see reported in scripture are, hear the good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the king has arrived. He's been anointed and here he is. You've waited 600 years You've been asking, you've been wondering, and here I am. So your introduction there, a king is the good news because the king accomplishes great and many benefits for his people. And so Mark 1.15 is Jesus declaring that the gospel, the good news, is that the kingdom of God was here. That's in contrast to how we typically present the gospel as you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Words never on Jesus' tongue, never in the scriptures anywhere. Um, not that we're not God's children when we believe in Jesus. It's just God very emphatically doesn't use that terminology. And that should cause you to just, you know, get that should be a, a bop on your nose if that's what your Christianity is. If the center of your Christianity is I can have a personal relationship with Jesus, know that you have no scriptural backing for that phraseology. Okay, 
Um, I say that and I always get shocked looks less and less each time I say it. <laughs> but yeah, it's not in there. The word relationship is in the scriptures once. Um, and, and just look at Jesus. Look at Paul. Look at Peter. Look at their sermons. They say, believe. John says, believe that Jesus is the Christ and you'll have life. But they don't present the touchy-feely, you can have a buddy that we present in, you know, over the last 40 years in America. Um, so, but that's good news. And, and realize that Jesus and God the Father, they're sovereign. And as the Holy Spirit inscripturates, they could have said, you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. They could have said, you can invite Jesus into your heart, and they never say it. What they say is believe. What they say to Old Testament people, circumcise your hearts. Have your religion be more than um, external rites, ceremonies. But have your religion be something of the heart where you, where you truly believe and have faith. So number eight here, we're at our eighth characteristic of what a Jew understood with a king. What does a king mean to God's people? And so we're at the eighth thing here, and it's this. Jesus being a king is good news because his kingship means a fruitful and abundant life or soul for you and all in his kingdom. The good news of a king, and we've been saying it over and over again in our declaration of the gospel almost each week over the past five weeks, Psalm 72. When Solomon is becoming king over Israel, David's still alive, and he introduces Solomon's the chosen one, and gives Solomon his own mule, and Solomon rides into Jerusalem uh, as a foreshadowing of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and uh, Solomon has this coronation, and he is anointed as king, and here's this psalm, Psalm 72, and you can look at the words there um, on the front of your bulletin uh, there. Uh, psalm 72 is of Solomon. David writes this about Solomon. And it's, it expresses what Old Testament people understood from the Old Testament scriptures about what a king meant to them. So, um, this king we have now is not Solomon, but we have the good and final ultimate son of David as our king. Our Christ is Jesus. Our Messiah is Jesus. Our anointed one is Jesus, not Solomon, though Solomon was anointed, and that's the Hebrew word Messiah. Um, uh, Christ is the Greek word that means anointed. But Jesus is good news to us because if he is our king, that means we have a fruitful life, an abundant life, a good life, a satisfying life, satisfying in our soul. So A, let's talk about this. That's, a, that's the whole thing. All, all this is like A through E or something like that. Um, a, in Old Testament Israel, a righteous king made the kingdom and its people. So in Old Testament Israel, a righteous king made the kingdom and its people fruitful and abundant. And note that this is a B, a supernatural thing. It is God's doing. Now, God uses means. He uses a king appropriately administering the kingdom, that kind of thing. 
but a king can't cause the wheat field to produce an abundant crop of wheat. A king can't, you know, a human king can't cause the rain to fall. But God supernaturally, when God's people had faithful kings, faithful sons of David, like David, like Solomon in the first half of his life, like Josiah and Hezekiah, he makes the rain to fall and he gives the people abundant, abundant crops. So turn back to Deuteronomy 28, page whatever. We read it, Jim read it for us. Deuteronomy is the last thing. It's it's five sermons of Moses with some framing around it. It's what Moses preaches to the people, uh, perhaps on five different occasions on, on Mount Nebo before they um, at, they're still in Moab. Mount Nebo is just across the Jordan River, kind of at the the north side of the uh, Dead Sea, and, and he repeats for this succeeding generation, those who were twenty years old, under twenty as they came out of Egypt. Um, and born uh, in the wilderness, he preaches to them the same stuff that the same law, the same stuff that he had been preaching in in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers to their fathers. And, and in Deuteronomy, he's going over uh, that they have a choice, um, that they have a choice in their lives. Um, that is, as saved people, saved from Egypt, saved from their slavery. Okay, hear that. We're saved people saved from our slavery to sin. He, he teaches them that in their saved state, they, that God has given them these certain laws to obey that are good for them, good for their lives. He's teaching them through Moses how to live in the promised land so that they will prosper. And he, he says this, so in Deuteronomy 28, look at verse 4. Um, there look at, you know, as you look down in your Bibles there, you can see a caption that says blessings. And then like at verse 15 or 16, look what it says there. Curses. And and he brings this point up that through their obedience to him, they're already saved. But as saved people, they can either have a life of blessing or a life of curses. A life of abundance or a life of scarcity. And so he says it's your choice and so he lists for them all these blessings in verses 1 through 14, 15, 16, something like that there. And then he says, but you can also have this life of scarcity, too, if you don't follow me. But as they follow him, here's what he says. Verse 4, the fruit of your womb will be blessed. Right? We know from the scriptures God opens the womb. And that can be a blessing or sometimes it's a blessing that he keeps the womb closed. For some people, yeah, and, and you know, God's good to us, whether he opens the womb or closes uh, the womb. But generally, he opens the fruit of the womb, makes the fruit of the womb be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. So human prosperity in terms of kids and then even the livestock, even what they own, their cattle and sheep would be prosperous, too, that they it would multiply for them. Verse 5, your basket, okay, gathering the grain. Your basket and your kneading trough, okay, taking the grain, producing bread and your kneading trough will be blessed. Look down to verse 8. Verse 8, the Lord will send a blessing. See how this is a supernatural thing. 
the Lord will send a blessing on your barns. That is, they'll be full, full of grain, full of your produce, overflowing so that you'll have enough. He'll send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he has given you. Look at verse 11. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground in the land he swore to your forefathers to give you. Now verse 12. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty. That means the clouds to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but borrow from none. Verse 13, the Lord will make you the head, not the tail. So no one's going to jerk you around. Um, if you pay attention to the commands of the Lord, your God, that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. And verse 14, do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. So what he does, he saves his people. And then he says, now here's how to have a prosperous time in the land that I'm giving you. Walk in my ways. And ultimately, it's just this bottom line, verse 14. Follow me, love me, worship me, and don't follow other gods and serve them. And part of, part of following God is giving him the sacrifices that cover your sins. So don't think this is a worksy kind of thing for your justification. Okay, this is your justification happened back in Egypt. You're saved back there. Okay, and so part of the obeying God is, is, is this confession of sin that you have in the land of bringing sacrifices and say, God, what, what I am about to do to this animal as I sacrifice this animal to you before the priest is what should have happened to me for the sins that I've committed. But you in your mercy have allowed this animal so to substitute for me. That's how good you are, God. And, and God says, just follow me. Trust me in this. Trust this gospel that I put your sins on animals and put them to death instead of you. And as you follow me and don't follow other gods, as you follow, walk in my ways, not in the ways of the nations, I'll bless your womb. I'll bless your field. I'll send rain at the right time. You ever try to put uh, Turf Builder Plus 2 on? You know, you got to wait for the rain and get out there while the grass is wet and then hope it doesn't rain anymore. <laughs> but, but this is what God says. I'll take care of this. It's a supernatural thing. Blessing is supernatural to you. It's what God gives. It's what he sends. I will send blessing upon you, he says in this list of blessings. So the question is, how do God's people stay faithful? What's God's means of his people staying faithful so that they can have these blessings as they live their lives, which God wants for them. He's saying, please follow me so I can bless you. Um, as he says to Malachi later, test me and see if I'm, I'm good. I'll open the storehouses of heaven uh, for you. But how do they stay faithful? How do the people of God uh, stat or, or, or experience this blessing and fruitfulness? Well, we learned something in the book of Judges. Um, you don't stay faithful if you don't have a king. You don't stay faithful if you ignore what Moses had preached to them 11 chapters before in Deuteronomy 17. See, I can do math. 28 minus 11 is 17. 
And God says, when you get into the land, say, let's put a king over us. God says, put the king over you that I choose. And they don't do that when they get into the land. And so we have this whole book, the book of Judges, where it shows God's people being oppressed and following after other gods and foreigners coming in. And they're the tail, Israelites, are the tail, not the head. They're the ones paying high taxes to other nations. So the wealth that they're earning in their barns and their, their grain is going out to other nations and their barns aren't filled. And the refrain in the book of Judges is, yeah, and there was no king in Israel. And everyone, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, but finally, um, God's people obey this Deuteronomy 17 that says, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Note there in that, that verse there, it says he must be from among your brothers and not a foreigner. That speaks of Jesus, right? He's not just only God coming from heaven, a foreigner coming down to earth. He's a brother Israelite as a king needed to be, a born of Mary, um, fully human as well as God. Uh, but look at Psalm 72 now in the front of your bulletin there. Um, verse verse three is where it says uh, the mountains. It's the first leader part there. This is the expectation with Solomon as a righteous king. This is what David knows to be true. When there is a faithful king over God's people, here's what happens. And this psalm is God's pe people, people under the leadership of David saying, God, just let this be so. May he be, may Solomon be righteous so we experience these things. And so in, in verse three there, your first leader part, the mountains will bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. Again, keep this in context. This is when Solomon rules over us righteously. The mountains will bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. Even the mountains will be growing crops. That's kind of hard. It takes a lot of work. But those will, you know, water won't go on those and just wash those crops away. So in verse, verse seven, um, in his days, it's the congregational response there. In his days, prosperity will abound. This is Solomon's days, lower H, okay, lowercase h. In Solomon's days, as he reigns in righteousness, prosperity will abound. See what they understand? The land will be prosperous. The rain will come to us at the right times because we have a righteous king. And when we have a righteous king, we won't be doing what's right in our own eyes. A righteous king will lead us in God's ways and we'll be able to experience the blessings of Deuteronomy 28. See how that all works together? But it doesn't work unless you have a king and a righteous king. If you have a wicked king, then those blessings don't come to you. The people follow the wicked king in doing wicked things and following other gods. This is the primary history of God's people in first and second kings. Right? As they have a king over them who's wicked uh, in those chapters. Uh, verse 16, um, the leader part there, at the, the second leader part, let grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon. Let it thrive like the grass of the field. So this is what happens when a person is a part of God's people, a part of God's kingdom, and they have a righteous king. That bodes well for us. 
because Jesus is our king and he is 100% righteous. All the kings in Israel were compared to David. David was the pinnacle of righteousness as a king, but we well know David's sin. But Jesus is a king who doesn't sin at all, who never causes trouble to come to us by what he has done. But how does this relate to us? Um, prosperity, because we have a righteous king, Jesus. See, that's good news. How does this relate to us? Um, physical crops and rain? No. Christians in Africa experience famine. Okay. Uh, we experience persecution. Um, Christians can lose their jobs. Uh, prosperity gospel only works in the United States and other wealthy nations. Try to try to make the pro prosperity gospel work in Africa. You know, they're you know they may believe it for two years, and then later they're going to say this doesn't work. Christianity must be false. <laughs> uh, prosperity gospel is where you think that the blessings in a physical way will come to you before the new heavens and new earth. You know, at that time they come to us physically as well. But how, do, how does this relate to us, us having a righteous king, a faithful king, and us being blessed? Well, see in your outline there, in what way does this happen to you? In what way does this happen to you living today? Um, we know here, here are passages, Luke 24, 1 Corinthians 10, Colossians 2, Hebrews 8, and Hebrews 10. These are all passages that say the Old Testament is just foreshadowing of what Jesus will accomplish for his people when he comes, dies, raises, arises from the dead. Um, and New Testament uh, speaks of this abundance and prosperity still being part of what the king brings to his people. But it's not a king reigning in physical Jerusalem. It's a king who reigns above us now in the heavenly Jerusalem. Zion above, as the writer of Hebrews says. And it's an abundance and a, and a prosperity that Jesus speaks of, John 10.10. 10, I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly or to the full. But it's a, a prosperity or a, an abundance that's number one. It's not material or physical. It's not a material or physical prosperity. Um, poverty and want physically exist among God's people today on the earth and traditionally have very much uh, been with God's people on the earth. Um, this has been the case since Jesus was around and before. It was the case with Jesus. It was the case with Paul at times, Philippians 4.12. Paul says, I know what it is like to be in need. He's talking about his time as an apostle of Jesus. He says, I know what it's like to be in need. So, out the door with material blessings being a part of what you're guaranteed right now. You may have material blessings if you're living in America and have one of these things, um, you're living in prosperity. Okay, um, But physical prosperity is not a, a part of things. It wasn't a part for Paul. Paul says, I know what it is like to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry whether living in plenty or in want. So Paul was in want. Paul was hungry. Paul was in need. Uh, Paul talks about the Macedonian churches of the day, and he says this about them in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty 
it welled up in generosity. They'd given to Paul to his ministry so it could go and minister and didn't have to tent make. Um, and, and so the Macedonian churches were impoverished. We can read uh, as well in the, uh, in the book of Acts that the church in Jerusalem, the Christian church in Jerusalem, they were impoverished. And Paul spends all this time collecting money from various churches in, in Greece and Macedonia and Asia. And he brings that money to the Jerusalem church at the end of the book of Acts, like in Acts 26. Um, but it's uh, certainly true of Jesus as well. Paul writes in, in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians he says, and this is appropriate that we have poverty because, um, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich in heaven, made himself for your sakes poor so that through his his poverty, you might become rich. OK, so poverty is something that the gospel is not promising you physical prosperity or material wealth. Uh, that may or may not be God's course for you in life. Don't put your heart on it. Um, so what kind of prosperity or abundance or fruitfulness can you expect? Number two, it's a prosperity and abundance of soul. A prosperity and abundance of soul. So uh, Matthew 7, 16, Jesus said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Uh, either bad fruit among the unbelieving who have, dis who have uh, rejected Jesus or good fruit, an abundant fruit among his own people. Um, John 10, 10, Jesus says, I came that they might have uh, life and might have it abundantly. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the spirit. Get this. This is Old Testament stuff that they're bringing in. They're showing you and me how to take the shadows and the foreshadowing of the physical stuff in the Old Testament and apply it to our apply it to our lives today. Fruitfulness and abundance is no longer a thing for us about crops. And if you're a Christian farmer, you can still pray for an abundant crop, but you may or may not have it. But one thing you can be sure of in the gospel is that you can have an abundant crop of your soul. Fruit of the spirit in abundance and the fruit of the spirit is not wheat and apples and pears and barley uh, fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness and self-control these are soul things it's soul abundance brought to us by the spirit or ephesians 9 uh, it says for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth that's fruit in your soul goodness, righteousness, and truth, a full soul. These fruit are soul things, stuff of your person, stuff of your life. And this abundance is not an abundance of things. Um, question is, how do you get this fruit of life and soul in abundance? That's your next point there. How do you get this fruit of life and soul in abundance? D. The soul prosperity, the fruitfulness, is a product of the Holy Spirit. A product of the Holy Spirit in you. So 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You as an individual, as an individual Christian have the Holy Spirit in you. Um, so how do you get these fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's not a product of you grinding it out 
and working it hard, working hard, just you. Um, no, the fruit of the spirit is fruit produced by the spirit in you. Uh, but let's talk about this and, and pick this out and get a little bit more definite and precise about how this happens. So number one, um, note this, the spirit's effect on you and the spirit's effect on you is not fairy dust. Okay, so this does not mean the scriptures are not saying to you, God is not saying to you that when you believe, God will sprinkle upon you fruity fairy dust. There, and all of a sudden, you'll be loving and joyful and, and at peace with everybody and have all this self-control and gentleness. It's not fairy dust. Um, where all of a sudden you wake up and you're changed. Everything has changed in you. Your demeanor, your attitude, how you go about life, what you value. It's not, it's not that. Uh, that is your next blank there. So it's not fairy dust. It's not a magical change that happens apart from your action. It's not fairy dust. It's not a magical change that happens apart from your action. Um, I, I love the scene, and one of my favorite movies is Shallow Hal. Um, Randy and Laura gave that DVD to me like 20 years ago. <laughs> and watch, it's Jack Black, and. And he's shallow and he only looks at physical beauty in women. So he's always chasing after the most beautiful woman he can see on the street unsuccessfully. Uh, but he ends up uh, in an elevator with Tony Robbins, um, the TV guru guy, as, as, as he says, as Hal says. Um, and and uh, the elevator gets stuck. And so they're trapped in this elevator. So they're sitting in the elevator, just Jack Black and Tony Robbins. And Tony Robbins is playing himself. And Tony Robbins says, it seems like how you're just really fixated on external, on external beauty. I'm going to do something for you that's going to change your life. Now, does this sound like Tony Robbins or what? <laughs> and, and, and you're really going to appreciate it. It's going to make your life uh, better. He says, Hal Larson, I'm going to do you a great favor. From this moment on, whenever you see someone in the future, you're only going to see what's inside them and respond to that. Because that, my friend, is where true beauty lies. That's why I love the movie. You know, so if you don't don't judge Hal at the beginning and get all mad, that's part of the that's part of the story. Um, and, and so he hypnotizes Hal, so that Hal goes out from there and only sees inner beauty. And when the camera in the movie shows something from Hal's perspective, you see someone beautiful there. Um, because he's only seen their inner beauty. Uh, and so poof, he's changed. But this is not Tony Robbins on you. The Holy Spirit is not Tony Robbins. The Holy Spirit is not Tinkerbell sprinkling dust on you or hitting you on the head with his banana fingers there, as he says in the movie. You remember that? <laughs> Tony Robbins has these huge hands. And so that's what Hal calls Tony Robbins. He says, whoa, look at those fingers. Those are like bananas. Um, so he calls them banana fingers for the rest of the movie. Uh, but A, um, the spirit's effect on you is not like that. A, soul prosperity does not happen just by you. Romans 7, 5 and 6. Uh, Paul writes, for when we were controlled by the sinful nature and not by the spirit of God, 
who was not in us before we came to faith. At that time, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore the fruit of death. But now, by dying to what what once bound us, we now serve in a new way of the Spirit. Um, So if it were just by you, you would produce the fruit of death. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul's saying about himself. When I had the law, but not the Spirit, it just produced the fruit of death in me. So I saw the law and it said, don't covet. And I coveted. (laughs) That was me without the Spirit. So it's not just by us, apart from the Spirit, trying trying really hard. Um, B, soul prosperity does not happen just by God's Spirit. Okay, so that's the fairy dust part. So it's not just by a person trying real hard apart from the Spirit. And it's not just the Spirit himself working. Note, if you've been in Sunday school, we're in the sanctification box here. Okay, justification is is what we call, you know, monergism, all God. God justifies you. It's not your works. You're not saved by works. But in sanctification, your works, your effort, your involvement is required. Paul writes, and God tells us through him that the spirit uh, coming upon you at spiritual birth does not put you in autopilot obedience. Right? You know that. You have God's spirit, you sin every day. You know that obedience is not autopilot for you. You know you sin, and when you sin, that's proof that it's not all up to the spirit. And so we don't uh, exert no effort and say, God, just change me. We're asking for fairy dust. We're asking for Tony Robbins to bop us on the head in the elevator. That's not how God communicates that he works. Rather, God's spirit comes upon you and God tells us through Paul in uh, Galatians 5.25, we read it, keep in step. You keep in step with the spirit. Get that? You have a role. The spirit can be in you and he can leave you behind because you're doing nothing. You're not following him. You want the Old Testament picture? It's the glory cloud. The spirit of God leading the people. And they stayed put when the glory cloud, that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud stayed, stayed still. They stayed there. And when the pillar moved, that's when they traveled. That's the picture for you. You're to keep in step with the spirit. Or as he said earlier in Galatians 5.16, you're to live by the spirit and not by your sinful nature. But that's a command to you. That's an imperative to you. You live by the spirit. You Keep in step with the Spirit. So it's not uh, us, you know, Christian yoga, om, om, you know, and just hoping that we'll get out of our little trance there and be transformed and different. Everything will be different in our head. We're told to keep in step with the Spirit. Well, the Spirit wrote this book. So we keep step here, you know, learning this thing so we know how to walk. And then we're tempted each day and we're, we're given choices. Do we live in righteousness? Do we live in godliness? Or do we just live the same old way? Do we speak up when we know we need to speak up and defend somebody? Or do we stay silent? That's us keeping in step with the Spirit. Um, think of all the fruit of the Spirit. 
it all involves action on our part. Let's take love. Okay? Now, you can't love properly without the Spirit. But if your friend can't swim and falls off your boat and is saying, help me, and you don't do anything, are you loving? No. Loving involves action. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, it's all action. It's all the things you commit to doing to a person you love. It's not a feeling. There are no feeling words in 1 Corinthians 13. It's all action. It's how you, when you make the decision to love somebody, you're making a decision to be committed to their well-being. That's what love is. Being committed to somebody's well-being. And so the Spirit helps you with that. A fruit of the Spirit is that you take action being committed to their well-being. Whether defending them in your words, thinking well of them in your thoughts, doing things that they need, providing for them, helping them. Love is action for you. Um, you know, peace. You're not just at peace without some kind of change in your mind or realization. And that's an action on your part. Okay? Deciding God is in control. Um, that gives us peace about our circumstances. Um, I'm not to be somebody's judge. I was talking to you about, you know, getting mad at people and not getting mad at people in traffic. You know, I'm not their judge. And so if you make that decision, it's like, you know, that's that's action to be at peace with somebody, not to honk that horn or ride their or ride their tail. That establishes peace. We do things that mean we have peace with people instead of being at war uh, with people. So we can walk down all the fruit of the self-control. That, that, that's action on our part. And that can be exercising self-control to do something we're commanded to do that we don't want to do. Or that can be self-control of refraining from doing something that our sin nature is telling us to do. That's all action on our part. We take part, we cooperate in sanctification with the Holy Spirit to be like to be like Jesus. So understand that the fruit of the Spirit is not automatic. A Christian has the Spirit, uh, but can be living in great sin. And that Christian is not experiencing the fruit of the Spirit. They feel nervous. They feel guilty. Their relationships are are, are damaged. Um, they're tormented inside. Uh, but we experience the fruit of the Spirit as we participate along those along those lines, okay? Uh, and just know that's standard Christian theology. Justification is the work of God. Sanctification is a uh, um, synergistic work. You got that word written down in your, in your outline there. Um, and that's your C point. The fruit of the Spirit, fruitfulness, soul prosperity, happens uh, by both the Spirit and you. Synergism. S-Y-N means with, like synthesis, to bring two things together. Um, synagogue is where people would come together. Um, that, that little prefix there means with. Um, and, and so um, soul prosperity is synergism, and erg is energy. Okay, So it's the energy of both the Spirit, but you cooperating, you keeping in step with the Spirit, just like God's people who in the wilderness had the Spirit of God, the presence of God in that pillar of fire, in that pillar of cloud, they could have just stayed in their tents and watched that pillar of fire 
go away. Watch that pillar of fire or cloud go away. But God says, keep in step with me. Keep in step. And so it's both. God's people have to follow along. Um, so um, how does this work? Number two, not fairy dust, not magical change, but rather the Spirit enables you. The Spirit enables you to hear and understand your king's commands. You understand the commands of Scripture because of the Spirit. And then you, in his power, in the power of the Spirit, do those commands. So in both both sides of that, you and the Spirit are involved. So I'll say that again. The Spirit enables you to hear and understand your King's Jesus commands. And you, in his power, do those commands. So apart from the Spirit, you can't hear and understand what he's asking you to do. And then apart from his Spirit, you can't do them. But with his Spirit, you can understand what he's asking you to do and why he's asking you to do it and why that makes sense. And with his spirit, you have the power to do those things, to fulfill that. So John 3, 3, Jesus says, you know, you, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And so that's what that's what uh, God brings about in us, a, a born again, a new spiritual birth. Um and then he begins to teach about this in, in John 14 and 15. And that brings us to E, brings us to E. Um, part of the good news of Jesus being king, part of the good news of Jesus being king is that he as king in heaven from his throne, where Jesus is now at the right hand of the father in heaven from his throne, um, he sends his spirit. He sends his spirit to supernaturally enable, enable abundance and fruitfulness in your soul. Um, so Jesus is at the right hand of God. Um, Hebrews 1, 3 tells us Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, having offered his own body for purification of our sins. Having done that, he rose to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And he told his disciples in John 15, 26, that after he left, he would send them his spirit. He and the Father both would send us his spirit um, so that we could bear much fruit. So part of the, the good news is Jesus as king fulfills this role. He rises to heaven, takes his kingly throne in heaven, and enables fruitfulness in us not wheat crops, not barley crops, not apple apple orchards that are abundant, but rather he sends us his spirit so that our souls can be fruitful. If we have a righteous king, we have abundance and fruitfulness. Not in the way the people of Solomon's day had it, but nonetheless, if we have a righteous king, Jesus, we have abundance and fruitfulness. And how we, our Christian people, ever since the day of Jesus being here on the earth, experience abundance and fruitfulness. This abundance and fruitfulness of soul is by his sending his spirit to you to regenerate you, to cause you to be born again, as he writes through uh, Peter in 1 Peter 1, 2. So, number one, uh, walking through this a little bit, as you walk in your king's commands... As you walk in your king's commands, again, we're in the sanctification box here. We're not talking about how you're justified before God. 
Okay, that has nothing to do with your obeying commands. You're being forgiven. It has nothing to do with your obeying commands. You're being freed from your slavery to sin. It has nothing to do with your obeying his commands. The law doesn't come till Sinai. You get freed back in Egypt before that happens. So we're freed, uh, saved people. Uh, but as saved people, he brings us to Sinai and he says, now, here's how to live. Here's how I created you to live. Here's how I framed you to live. Here's how, if you live this way, you'll have joy in your heart. You'll have satisfaction. You'll have peace. You'll have self-control. You'll have love. So as you walk in your king's commands, empowered by the spirit he sent you, you bear, here's your next blank, fruit. You bear fruit. Okay, so you see how all this is working together. He's given you, your king has sent you his spirit, not rain from the heavens to cause your crops to grow. The spirit, okay, from the heavens to cause your soul to grow, to be more like it was created at creation in the first place to be. So as you walk in your king's command, empowered by the spirit uh, that he sent you, you bear fruit. Deuteronomy 28. Um, God has this little qualification on whether God's people would experience their blessings in their saved state in the promised land. And he says this in verses 13 and 14 of Deuteronomy 28. The blessing comes among the saved people of God as they walk in his ways. As you walk in my ways and follow me, I will shower these blessings upon you. Jesus puts the same thing this way in John 41 part of this gospel lesson reading John 14 21 whoever has my commands and obeys him he is the one who loves me and then he says in John 15 10 if you obey my commands if you remain in my love you will bear much fruit John 15 10 same thing just repeating Moses I'm going to save you Jesus says and then I'm going to cause you to bear much fruit, but you need to remain in my commands. You need to remain in my love. And how do you love me? By obeying my commands. This is what Jesus teaches in John 14 and 15. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you obey my commands, you'll bear much fruit. If I obey God's commands to be at peace with my brothers, if I obey God's commands to treat uh, the wicked with patience, Luke 6, Sermon on the Mount. I'll be at peace with wicked people who might want to do me harm. Uh, if I obey God's commands about being patient, I'll, be, I'll have that fruit of peace in my heart. If that person turns back to me and responds in, in love and kindness because I've initiated with kindness with them, I'll have joy. I'll say, this works. <laughs> instead of being at war like I told you last week about my friend Steve Denacy when Steve Denacy turned to me in grace and said hey you know whatever he said to me and we were friends again and we both had joy because we were good friends uh, and we became good friends again after a, a five hour hiatus <laughs> by a physical fist fight at, at school so what's the key to a fruitful soul and rich soul satisfied soul prosperous life as a Christian? It's not by walking in disobedience to King Jesus who loves you, who has saved you, 
who desires for you to have a rich soul and life? It's by, as Jesus said, having his commands and obeying him. Now, your obedience as a Christian has nothing to do with whether you're going to heaven or not. That was established by you having faith. That's where our declaration of the gospel this morning was especially oriented toward that. Right? You're not saved by your works. But we're talking about how as a saved person, you can have a fruitful life. And God says, you can have a fruitful life. You'll bear much fruit as you remain in my love. How do you remain in my love? By obeying me. He who obeys me loves me. He who loves me obeys me, Jesus says. So we bear much fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is a prosperous soul. A prosperous soul. Um, your soul is blessed. It's like a blessed and fruitful field in Old Testament Israel. Reaping more than you thought you planted. Filling your barn full of grain where you have overflow. And your neighbor comes to you in need and says, I'm, I'm hungry. And you say, oh, take whatever you need. Because God has blessed you. When we live in this obedient state, when we're blessed by God, we can be like toward a, that toward other people. We can say it's like Jerry Seinfeld. He's not a Christian, but he's you know he's someone's talking to him about his faults, about his you know aversion to people, and he said, "Yeah, that's true." He said, "But God's given me a pretty good uh, dealt me a pretty good deck <laughs> in life. He's the richest entertainer in the world. He has more money than any entertainer in the world." And that's the kind of thing when we have plenty of money, so to speak, plenty of prosperity, when our soul is rich, we can be kind to people and we cannot worry so much when someone cuts me off in traffic or whatever. You say, you know what? That's the worst thing that happens to me in life. I'm OK because <laughs> God has been good to me. He's given me prosperity that that really matters. So number two quick two points for you here. Number two, the doing of your king's commands don't prevent you from experiencing, don't prevent you from experiencing abundance. Satan's ways do. This is Jesus' preface to John 10, 10. He says, the thief comes to steal and rob and destroy. The thief is Satan. So when you walk not in Jesus' ways, you're getting stolen from you're getting destroyed. Your, your joy, your peace, your self-control, if you're walking in Satan's ways, are destroying you, are, 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 are pushing you down. Um, and you're being stolen from. The fruit of the Spirit is being stolen from you. But, um, verse, or, uh, sorry, uh, number three in your outline, the doing of your king's commands, the doing of it means you'll be living in his blessings. Think of yourself in the promised land, surrounded by fruitfulness, all that you need to have. You'll be living, as you do your king's commands, you'll be living in his blessings. And so this is how we take Deuteronomy 28 today. God wants to bless his people abundantly. He says, here's all you got to do. Walk in my ways. Not so that you'll be in the promised land. I'm already putting you there but so that you'll be blessed in the land. So you won't be invaded. So you won't be stolen from by foreign armies. 
or as Jesus says in John 10, 10, so you won't be stolen from by the thief, Satan, who comes to steal and rob and destroy. So by doing your king's commands, that means you'll be living in his blessings with, here's your blank, with an abundance, with an abundance and fruitfulness in your soul. And that's regardless of your circumstances. Physically, materially, you may have plenty, you may have, you may be in want, or you may be in plenty, like Paul. But in his soul, he said, but I'm content. My soul's good in whatever circumstances the Lord puts me in. I, I, and if, if you know me well, if you've been around a while, you know one of my favorite verses is this, James 1.25, which speaks about what happens to us as we obey, as we're in the act of obeying God, as we're in the act of keeping in step with the Spirit and following that that glory cloud, that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud. James 1, 125 says, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. See, a law doesn't imprison you, doesn't put you in chains, but the perfect law that gives freedom, the one who looks at the perfect law gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. And you know that experience in your life. When you've had those temptations and you walk in God's ways, you know the satisfaction your soul has when you walk in his ways. You're blessed in the doing of his will. It's an experiential blessing that you get. So summary, summary. Eighth point of why it's good news to have a king. It is good news that Jesus is the Christ, your king. It is good news that Jesus is the Christ, your king, because he, as king, has given you his spirit. He, as king, has given you his spirit so that you can be prosperous, so that your soul can be prosperous and satisfied in this life, regardless of your circumstances. Your soul can be doing well because your king has given you his spirit. And by his spirit, you've been able to walk in his ways and keep in step with the spirit and enjoy your life, whether you have want or material abundance. Whatever your situation, he makes your soul good because he's the righteous king who brings prosperity to the land, the land of your soul. Let's pray.